of Exodus was written about 3,500 years ago. It was authored by God through a man named Moses, who we will meet in this study. The people of God, through a series of events, have ended up in Egypt, and what started as a place of refuge at the end of the book of Genesis is about to become a place of bondage, as we will see in this first message, which is called From Allies to Enemies. From Allies to Enemies. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for today, and thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to share the Word of God. And Lord, I, I know you have spoken to me. I have begged you to speak to me, Lord, and you have. And Lord, I just pray that, Lord, you'll allow me now, uh, that God, you will speak through me, that the words that I will share, God, will not be the ones that I will choose. And Lord, even if they're on my notes, if they need be not words that I should tell, I should speak, God, that you remove them. Lord, directing God, everything through your Spirit, Lord, you know my desire is to disappear. That Father, that you might be heard. We love you, Lord. I love you, and I'm thankful for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Exodus verse, uh, chapter number 1, verse number 1. It says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel. Uh, this is Israel who was, uh, Jacob was his other name. He was the son of Isaac and also he who, who was the son of Abraham. So it's his, Abraham's grandson. Which came into Egypt, every man, he, every man in his household came with Jacob. So we see the name listed Israel and we also see the name listed Jacob. Jacob's name originally was called, uh, it meant the holder of the heel or it meant the supplanter. If we remember that with Esau and Jacob, Jacob came out and he was holding his brother's heel and then he, he, he usurped or, or stepped into his brother's role as, as being the head of the household. So he was a little bit sneaky there. And then he changes, God changes his name to Israel. Israel means to wrestle, that rest, one that wrestles with God or clings to God. So God changes his name. The very first time he changes it is in Genesis 32, 28. But then I have a verse here, 35, verse 10 and 11, which I'm going to read to you, which really kind of supplant. This is or solidifying the covenant with Jacob. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more a Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. In verse number 11, And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Notice the words here. It says, Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and king shall come out of thy loins. Okay? So, we understand that they left, uh, they left where they were. Why were they in Egypt? They came to Egypt to escape a a famine that had gripped Canaan, which is where Jacob was living, and they now make their way to Egypt. Now, Jacob's household and Israel's household, who was in that household? We have in chapter and verse number two, we see the, the, the names of the sons of Israel. The first one's named Reuben, then Simeon, then Levi, and Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So their families would eventually, these would actually be, be eventually be called the 12 tribes of of Israel. Okay? And in verse number five, it says, And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. Now, Joseph, we know in the book of Genesis, we know that Joseph was a young man who was kind of cast aside by his brothers out of jealousy. He falls into slavery. He goes from being a slave to being a servant, and then from a servant to being a prisoner in jail. He stays in jail, eventually finds his way out through a series of events because of his faithfulness to God. God draws him out of there. He eventually puts himself and actually puts him into a governmental role where Joseph actually is someone who is of power and control. And God's, the reason what God did is he actually allowed J Joseph to be able to interpret the, the dreams of Pharaoh. And he indicated through those dreams that there was going to be a famine that was going to hit. And what happened was Joseph was able to prepare for the famine. So as, is, as Israel and his sons, Joseph's brothers, come into Egypt, Joseph has made a way of protection and also provision for them. 
So we see here, Joseph is highly revered in Egypt at this time, and his family would have been revered as well. So as we're going to enter into the book of Exodus, we're going to see a shift that takes place. But in Genesis 47, 27, 28, it says here, And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the, in the country of Goshen. Now this is a part where they would have, because most of the men, these, uh, the, the, the 12 uh, Israel sons, they were going to be uh, herdsmen, right? They had a lot of herd uh, of cattle and, and sheep and things of that nature. And they had possessions therein and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 70 years, so the whole age of Jacob was 140 and 7 years. So Israel dies, Jacob dies at the age, at the age of 147 years old. Now in verse number 6, okay, now we're back in Exodus. It says, and Joseph died and all his brethren and all that generation. Okay? So now Joseph was the one who had set, basically, who had, who had kind of prepared the way and had done all these wonderful things and was respected in Egypt. He dies, and then all that generation dies. So we know this to be about 100 years is estimated this time frame whenever Joseph dies. They've been in Egypt. Now look here in verse number 7. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. So these 12 descendants have, have, uh, have been fruitful and multiplied, as God has told them to do. And in this 100 years, there is a tremendous number of these Hebrews. Not by coincidence, we see here that the words be fruitful and be multiplied. Does anybody remember another time when that was mentioned? Back in the book of Genesis, right? When Jesus, or actually in Genesis 1.28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So that was told of the commission that was given to Adam and Eve, which they were to be fruitful and multiply, the same commission that was given to, to Jacob. It's at this time that we start to see the shift take place. And the relationship between the Egyptians and the Hebrew people starts to change. Up to this point, they have lived side by side. They've lived in a culture where there's not been any strife whatsoever. Now, by what method does the shift take place? Verse number eight. Now there rose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Okay? So not only does he not know Joseph personally, he doesn't really know anything about Joseph. Okay? So all the wonderful things that Joseph had done and all the respect that his family had, this new king doesn't know anything about it. So it comes down to the leadership. Verse number 9. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Okay? So these Hebrews, they are starting out numerous. Have you noticed that there's an awful lot of them and not maybe as many as, of us as, as perhaps we could have been? So we see a political leader. He's going to start to twist the public opinion of the Jewish people. There is no grounds for this. The Jews are not doing anything to be a threat in any way to the Egyptian culture. They are no longer, they're not doing anything. Now, what I thought about was this. There's a, a really interesting parallel in our modern history of a very same situation, okay, where a political leader was able to shift the view of the Jewish people, and we saw a culture follow along. In 1919, there was a political leader that rose to power in Germany named Adolf Hitler. He was a relative nobody, uh, but basically through his powers of persuasion uh, and in deception, he was actually able to come into the German uh, political scene, which was at a very vulnerable point. After World War I, Germany was really, in, was really, really struggling. Their economy was crashing, and there were all kinds of problems and issues taking care of, taking place in the country. So there was no real, uh, uh, there wasn't a really solid foundation. There was a lot of strife. Now, he, had, uh, many he made many promises of prosperity uh, and introduced radical ideas that were supposed to lift Germany out of its political and economic stupor. 
Okay? Through deception, he began to shift the public view of the German people against their Jewish countrymen. They had lived in peace for generations, but now they were identified as a threat that must be dealt with. Hitler told the people that the struggles of Germany after World War I were actually because of the Jews. They were the problem, or they were the reason for the problems. Through his tactics of intimidation and deception in 1934, he seized absolute power of the German government and solidified the Nazi party as a world force to be reckoned with. He masked hatred as nationalism. And in using that concept, he was able to brainwash a generation of Germans to suddenly see their countrymen as evil. In a book that he wrote when he was imprisoned, it's called Mein Kampf, written by Hitler. And that actually, Mein Kampf means my struggles, okay? And Hitler wrote it and he talked about a concept which is called the big lie, which is a propaganda technique that he describes in his book, and this is back in 1930, which is years before he actually takes charge, takes control. And the gist of what this Mein Kampf book tells us, the big lie, is this. If you tell a lie loud enough and long enough, people will believe it and they will accept it. And the more outrageous the lie, the greater impact it has. The little lies, not so much, but ridiculous lies that people go, that, that, that's so ridiculous. But if you tell it loud enough, and long enough, eventually people will accept it as a truth. So let's take a look at where that technique is first employed here with the Jewish people, okay? Verse number 10, notice this, this is the, the Pharaoh, he says, come on, notice this is developing sport. Let us deal wisely with them, he says, let's be smart, lest they multiply it, can, and, it, and, it came to pass, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so go them out of the land. He says, look, now this is completely theoretical. This is nothing to ever, there's no grounds for this whatsoever. He creates an argument based upon what he perceives as a way to kind of address something. I believe that he actually sees them as a threat, but there is no evidence for it. So bottom line is he's created this principle. What level of influence did the, did the king have upon the people? Let's take a look in verse number 11. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithams, uh, Pitham and Ramses. So basically, they have become a slave culture. They take all of the Hebrews, and they put them all into slavery, and they start to deal with them in a very harsh manner. God's people have been the victims of the big lie from the very, very beginning. Check this out. The road to destruction and damnation became thousands of years before that in a lie that took place in a garden. Genesis 3. Verses 3 through 5. But of the fruit of the tree, this is Eve speaking, she says, But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent, which we know who that is, and the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. God's lying to you. For God knows, for, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof. Notice this. He says, that in the day that ye eat thereof, he doesn't say that if you eat it, he says when, right? It's not an if, it's a when you eat it. He's already assuming it, right? Then your eyes shall be opened. You will finally see the truth. And it says, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You'll have all the answers. Every question you could possibly want to know. It's all based upon, if you'll just take that little bite, a lie. A lie. Now, being descendants of Adam and Eve, he says there that basically they're supposed to have all the answers. Would any of us agree that maybe we don't have all the answers? 
<laughs> that was a lie, lie, lie. No basis of fact whatsoever. But it certainly did introduce death. It certainly introduced death. So the Egyptians believe the lie and they take action in afflicting the Jews. Verse number 12. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians' fear of the Israelites actually increases during this time. They're becoming more and more fearful because the only thing they have to base it on is not the actions of the Jews, but the numbers of the Jews. And they take that one concept and they run with it. Verse number 13, and the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. Rigor means that they put harsh treatment. They abuse them at this point in time. So they're getting more and more extreme in their behavior. Once the lie is accepted, it opens the door to more extreme behavior. In Germany, it got so extreme that they put them in concentration camps and they killed them by the millions. The more a lie is accepted, it allows us to go to extremes in behavior. Now, if we take this on an individual basis, right? If we believe a lie and we accept it, Guess what it does? It takes us, it pushes us to extreme behavior on a personal level, right? Now, what are some of the lies people personally believe? You're worthless. You're worthless. And people believe that, and if they hear it enough times, and it's said loud enough and long enough, not necessarily by someone from the outside, but eventually we start to say it to ourselves, right? And if we say it to ourselves loud enough and long enough, Eventually, it pushes us to extreme behavior, self-destructive behavior, where we might drink and not care if we wake up. We might take drugs. We might put ourselves in situations that are so dangerous and destructive, and we go, you know what? It doesn't matter because I'm worthless. Yet God sees us as a pearl of great price. He sees us as this beautiful thing that he created exactly as he wanted it to be. And what happens is we believe a lie and we allow a distortion of our culture and a distortion of the beliefs of other people to change the view that we have of ourselves when it should be filtered through the word of God, which God tells us that we are beautifully, wonderfully, wonderfully made. And God had a purpose for our lives. So our value doesn't come from the outside. It comes from the inside, understanding what God sees in us. And he created us for a purpose. Another one of those lies, maybe that we're unlovable, right? And what happens with people that believe they're unlovable is they seek love on an extreme level, in sexual relationships, in inappropriate relationships. They'll seek it anywhere, and they'll go to whatever extreme they must in order to get that feeling of love that they believe that they need externally. What we've got to realize is that each one of these ones, God is the answer to solving these issues that we feel. If you feel unlovable and you realize that God, when you finally understand that God really loves you, And that love is so pure and so real and so fulfilling and so rich, man, it feeds your heart like nothing else can. And all those relationships that we might try to fill in the void, we realize how pale they are in comparison to real love, incredible love. The fact that maybe we're not smart, all right? And maybe we just give up. We've all known kids that were in school, and you know what? You're like, how in the world, dude, they don't even try. They don't make any effort whatsoever because they believed a lot that, you know what, they're not going to succeed anyway, so what's the point in putting forth the effort? Help people to realize. We need to help our kids to realize that, you know what, God created them exactly as he did for a purpose and that he has a purpose for their life and he wants to use them. The fact that they're unwanted, right? Someone feels like they're unwanted. They try to fit in anywhere, right? Why do you think kids fall into gangs? 
because they don't feel like they're wanted at home and if they can be wanted somewhere. And if suddenly someone says, hey, you know what? You have value here. Well, hey, guess what? I will die for you. I'll do whatever I've got to do to feel like I have some worth and that you want me. If you have a relationship with someone, man, help people to realize in your own life and in your own family how much they mean to you. Take the time and use them. I'm telling you, it's so wonderful when we get to share our hearts with people that we care about. And so many times life is so full of things like phones and all these other distractions that we sit side by side with somebody we should be investing in and neither of us say a word because we're distracted with something that means nothing. And the person we need to be investing in is sitting right here. Take the time to invest, help people to understand their worth and that they're wanted. Satan is a liar. John 8, 44, he says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. You know why it calls him a murderer from the beginning? Because that very first lie, what does it do? It introduces death into the world. Death did not exist. He is a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it, right? He comes to destroy. Through his lies, Satan wants to cause extreme behavior. Adam and Eve are willing to defy God. That's how extreme their behavior became. And they made their lies, verse number 14. Listen to the how extreme the behavior goes of the Egyptians towards these Hebrews. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field, all their service, wherein they made them serve was with rigor. Wherein it says with all of their service, no matter what they did, they made it hard on them. There was no option to have a, there was nobody had a weak or an easy job. Every job was, was burdensome. Every job was filled with rigor and bondage and it was filled with bitterness. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shifra, and the names and the other Pua. Now, if I ruin those names and you know those names properly, I apologize to those people if they're here. If you know anybody named Shifra or Pua, I apologize for my mispronunciation. <laughs> but these are basically the OBGYNs of the day, okay? That's what these, these ladies are, okay? They're the midwives. And then the king says to them, he says, verse number 16, and he said, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, when you go to the Hebrews, he says, and see them upon the stools, it is to be a son. If it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. He says, look, if it's a boy, we're, look, we're, trying, to, we're trying to cull out the strength of these people. So they, we don't need to have them young men growing up here. Let's wipe out all the young men. And these ladies, they hear this order, okay? So they, they understand, believing his own lie, he orders newborn males to be killed. Now, why do you think, who do you think was feeding the king's thinking, right? And we know what his mission is. John 10.10 says, the Bible says, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So we know the motivation of the enemy. And we all face the same enemy. The same enemy that's fighting here is the exact same enemy that's fighting you today. The same one that fights you individually. The same one that fights your family. The same one that fights in your church, in your home, wherever you are. It's the exact same enemy who has the exact same motives, which are to steal, to kill, and destroy. Those are what's, that's what he's trying to do. And it says in verse number 17, But the midwives feared God and did not, as the king commanded them, but saved the men children alive, okay? So they made a choice. 
Now, in the book of Acts, we've seen several people that had a very similar situation, okay? They were ordered to do something, but they chose not to. And then we look in your book of Acts, chapter number 4, verse 19. This is Peter and John. They've been called before the Sanhedrin. They're being confronted by the Jewish leadership, and they're being threatened that they need not talk about Jesus. And he says here, this is Jesus, this is Peter's response. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. So basically, he's like, look, between listening to you and listening to God, who do you think we're going to follow, right? Notice what it says here in verse number 18. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? Why have you disobeyed me? Why have you not listened, right? Just like believing and accepting a lie can cause extreme behavior, guess what? Accepting a truth can also bring about extreme behavior. These Hebrew, slaves, these Hebrew slaves defied a king. Why? To honor God. You and I today, there are times when we're going to have to defy people or organizations, our culture, right? There may be instances that we will defy our culture and we will stand for God, right? And that's what I'm talking about. Like you, you pray at your meals, you stand in public, and you're like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know. Man, pray. Pray boldly. You know, carry your Bible. Talk about the Lord. Defend, defend Him. You know, someone takes His name in vain, man. Don't jump on Him and fight Him, but say, hey, you know what? Hey, that name is so sweet to me. It's so beautiful to me. It hurts my heart to hear you talk about Him like that. Could you refrain, please? Man, that has an impact. We stand up for Him. We defend Him, right? And think about this, love life. When we went out and we were praying at that abortion clinic, and the people that worked there at that abortion clinic were cursing us and giving us all kinds of gestures that were inappropriate and listening to the most god-awful music they could possibly choose and making demonic symbols like this, and while we were praying for them, they were cursing us and calling us names, right? Now, we could react in anger and frustration, or we can continue to pray, because guess what? Love changes things, not anger. And again and again, we talk about that concept. And anger is easy. It comes to us so like that, man. We can react in a moment and be angry just like that. But love doesn't come like that. Love doesn't hit you all of a sudden. It's like, man, I just, no. But, well, you can flare into a ready-to-punch somebody in the face in an instant, man. <laughs> Am I, I mean, I know I'm not, yeah, I'm good. I'm not the only one because I was like, man. <laughs> right? But the whole thing is that God wants us to love them, to love them, to love them, family. We may be in situations where we have to defy our families to follow God, you know? Either we impact our families with Christ, or the fact is our, our families will impact us for the world. And sometimes we have a tendency to pull back on our, on our faith when we're around people that don't have like belief. And I'm not telling you that you need to push it in their face, but I'm telling you, you need not back down and hide, right? However you are normally, be the same way. If you're going to pray, you know what? I mean, I was at, we were at a hunting lodge, and there's a whole lot of people that are not Christians there. And every meal, I stopped the whole kitchen. I said, hey, gentlemen, gentlemen, hey, guys, guys, you mind if I pray for the food? Oh, I'm like, you know? And I'm like, well, you know? And I mean, I, I got all of them to pray, you know what? And it's like, you know, that may be a little bit me pushing myself on them. But that's who I am. You want to honor God in your life regularly, then honor Him everywhere. Amen. Talk about Him everywhere. Don't be afraid. The government, 
We might have to defy our own government to follow God. In Romans 13, verses 1 through 4, uh, we have this explanation. It's, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The, power that be, or that, the powers that be are ordained of God. God's saying, look, those that have rule over you, I'm allowing them to have rule over you. I have sovereign power over everything, and if I'm allowing this to take place, recognize the fact that I have them there. Whosoever, it says in verse number two, therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. He says, look, if you're fighting against the one that I placed that I'm allowed to be in over you and you're fighting against them, guess what? You're actually fighting against my ordinance. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. God is using, now, now I'm not telling you that these people are always going to be right, but I'm telling you is that God's using them to make you more godly right? If someone is unkind, if someone is rude, if someone is hateful, if someone is, is ungodly, you learning to be kind and loving to them teaches you to be more like Christ, right? God's not always going to make things peachy keen. It's not always going to be no, no, no rumps and no, bump, no, no bumps and no hurdles. Bumps and hurdles are part of life. And what he does is he allows people to be in our lives that put bumps and hurdles on us. And by us adapting to love them anyway, which is displaying grace, we become more like him. Right? So these things, each person, God's saying, look, understand that there's a purpose to it. For the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. God says, look, I will reward your good behavior. When you do the right thing, you're going to see a result from it. Don't worry about the worry of the people that are over you. Let me handle them. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Ultimately, we're accountable to God. And what he's telling us here, he's saying, look, your behavior, your choices, in the end, guess what? God's going to execute judgment upon everyone. Justice will be served. It's not a matter of whether, whether or not it will be. It's just a matter of when it will be. Okay? Now, it might be our employer, and this could fit to the same thing we just read. We might have to defy our employers to follow God. If our employer asks us to do something that's unethical, to lie, to cheat, to steal, we cannot do that. We're to honor God above this individual in those instances. But outside of that, we do. And you know what? We do all that you do heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. There was a time when I was serving in the church, and you know what? I felt, I felt uh, unappreciated. I felt taken advantage of, all these things. And I was frustrated for six months. I walked around with this bitterness in my heart, anger and frustration, feeling like, man, I'm not being, not, not being recognized. I'm not this, I'm not that. And you know what God revealed to me was the fact that, you know, Dave, that's your pride. Get over yourself, dude. This ain't about you. Amen. And I was walking to a parking lot, carrying a bag of trash, picking up garbage in the parking lot. Nobody else was there. And as I was walking to the parking lot, I stopped. And God gave me that verse. Amen. Do all that you do, hardly as unto the Lord, not unto men. David, who do you do it for? Why are you picking up this trash? Why are you cleaning up this parking lot? Because you want to honor God. Well, guess what? I see it. Amen. And I'm pleased. Amen. It don't matter if anybody else sees it. Amen. All to the Lord, right? It's a different perspective. Different perspective. And the last one. Sometimes we may have to defy our own flesh in order to follow God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recount the exact same instance where Jesus talks about this. He says in Matthew 16, 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mark 8, 34, And when he had called the, called the people unto him with his disciples also, he saith unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Luke 9, 23, And he said unto them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
again and again and again. He says, look, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to do things right, you're going to need to defy yourself. You're one of your biggest problems you're going to have to face. There will be things on the outside, but guess what? This is a lot tougher. This is a whole lot tougher. This daily personal defiance is the hardest because it goes unseen. Right? It goes unseen. No one sees it. It's something we deal with on our own, but God knows. It gains no recognition. Our pride wants recognition. Just like me in the parking lot, man. I'm like, man, at least somebody come up and go, hey, thanks for cleaning up. But I was doing it for the wrong reasons if that's why I was doing it. Does that make sense? It, it's never ending. The attacks are relentless. The enemy will never stop. It causes us to live with a sense of accountability. Living not for ourselves, but living for God. Realizing that ultimately I'm accountable to him, not just me. The attacks prey on our weaknesses. Oh, man. Wherever you're weak, I guarantee you'll get hit again and again and again and again. And not until you submit yourself to God will that stop. Because you can overcome anything with God's power. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me, right? God has the power to overcome anything, any temptation that's placed before me. And he says that he won't make a way of escape. And that way of escape is through Christ himself. I'll make a way of escape. The temptations feed into our sin nature, right? Every day it feeds into our desire. It's easy to do wrong, man. Doing wrong is just, it comes second nature. It is so simple. That's why I said it's so easy to fly into anger and rage and much harder to go into love and forgiveness. Right? Somebody, as soon as somebody wrongs you, you're not like, man, I can't wait to forgive them. Oh, man, it's going to be so great. No, somebody does you wrong, you're like, dude, I'm going to get some vindication right now, man. I'm ready to handle this, right? It's easy to do wrong. It's hard to do right. But God fulfills us when we do right. And last, our pride can get us into a state of denial. We can even have a wrong heart, a wrong attitude, and we can convince ourselves that it's okay. We can live in denial, not facing it. And God says, look, I need you to be honest, not only with me, but more importantly, be honest with yourself. Take a look in the mirror of who you really are. And understand, these aspects of defiance, we have got to defy every part of this of our flesh because every day it wants us to fail. It wants us to drop the ball. We're trying to stand up for God and he loves, the devil loves nothing better than for us to fall flat on our face. And the best thing he loves more than anything else is when there's a crowd to see it. Not just Christians, but non-Christians, people that are lost, right? A lost person watches us and they say, you know what? Christians, huh? We'll see how they do. And they watch us and watch us and watch us and watch us. And the one day you slip up, they go, See, told you. Don't go around telling everybody you're a Christian and not live it. I'd much rather you keep your mouth shut and just live it. Live it and let your life, let your light so shine before men that they've seen your good works, not your good words, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. A lot of people talk the talk. It's a different thing to walk the walk. Don't open your mouth unless you're ready to live it. The women, the women through their defiance, were willing to give up their lives to follow God. Galatians 5.24 And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Okay? So how do we do that? How do we crucify the flesh? Romans 8.13 says For if ye live after the flesh ye shall die, but if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body ye shall live. So we overcome our flesh 
with the Spirit. And so we find ourselves falling into the flesh. We find ourselves reacting in the flesh. We find ourselves frustrated, upset, angry, whatever it is, filled with bitterness or rage or anger, whatever it is, it's when we seek the Spirit of God and we say, Lord, you know what I need you to do? I need you to help me right now. I'm struggling right now. Right now, I want vengeance. Right now, I want to strike and lash out at this individual. God, help me to see them with the eyes that you see them. You know what? If they're my brother... Help me to work to restore them. That's your heart and your desire. It's not my job to show them that they're wrong. It's my job to show them that I love them. And it's God's job to reveal to them. Because guess what? What we talked about last week, when the reason God shares with us things in the way that he does is because conviction from the inside makes a difference in people. Whenever you're, when, you, when you reprimand your kids, they don't turn around and go, I'm so sorry. They go away. And when they sit off by themselves and then they think about what they've done, then that's when it actually becomes real and they come back and they're truly sorry. And God wants to help us to recognize within ourselves. So when we're, sh- when we're kind and loving to somebody who treats us poorly, that causes them to fall under conviction. And then when they sit, the Spirit of God then swells up inside of them and helps them to recognize what it is they need to change. Right? And it's a matter of us you're trusting the Spirit to change us, not our will. i got to pick up the pace, sorry. In verse number 19, and the, wi- and the midwife said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. He says, look, we just cannot do what you're asking us to do. The main midwives have maintained their accountability to God, and they have opposed Pharaoh. Verse number 20, Therefore God dealt, with, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. So the people just keep on growing. God protects the midwives. And then we see here in verse number 21, And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. So the Lord blessed them with families of their own. So not only do they, is the, are the Israelite people growing, but now these midwives' families also. We see through the faithfulness of these, mid, of these Hebrew midwives that God not only blesses them through their commitment to him and protecting the children of Israel, but also protects them in, uh, from the repercussions of their choices. The Lord will fight for us. will fight for us as we endeavor to serve him with a heart that is in alignment with his. And that's the key. Remember, we're trying to do what we do for the cause of Christ with an alignment with what God's heart is. We're trying to do things according to his will. So his word tells us that his word tells us what his heart is. And as long as we aren't contradicting his word, guess what? We can be in alignment with his heart. The desire is God's, God's will never contradicts God's word. As we walk by faith and seek to live for him, the Lord will work on our behalf. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is your warder of them that diligently seek him. We need to diligently seek God on a day-to-day basis. If we're struggling with our flesh, we need to be putting ourselves into the Word of God and letting the Spirit reveal to us where we're wrong and help Him to reprove us and get us on the right track. The midwives were faithful to God, yet the threat still remains. Okay, There still remains a threat. In verse number 22, And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. So he tells the, the, the Egyptians, says, Look, if you hear a child being born, and you go in there, you check if it's a boy, throw it in the river and kill it. Because these Hebrews, they're not listening to me, but you know what? I need you guys to step up. You know the threat that they are. We've got to wipe them out. 
And we look at what happened in the German concentration camps. People ratted people out that they'd done nothing wrong simply because they were Jewish and they went to the concentration camps and died. There were good people that turned very, very evil because of the, 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 uh, the uh, influence of an evil concept and a lie that they believed. So the Midwest, they maintain their accountability. In Romans 8.28, we look at this. It says here, Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. So the Lord has a greater purpose for the evil of the Egyptian empire. So he allows it to be maintained, even though these women are faithful, even though they do what they do, and they defy God, the threat still remains, okay? Now, we look at that and we say that God works all things together for good, meaning God can take something evil and he can actually use it for a good purpose, okay? The Lord wants to use our faith and faithfulness to him to make a difference in the world around us, while at the same time, on a more personal level, he also wants us to, make, to be making a difference in the lives of those he allows us to touch. Now, we can all agree that our life and our world right now, it is filled with evil on many different levels, right? There are things we can recognize. If you go on the internet, man, it is a doorway to evil. Now, there are plenty of things on the internet you can use for good. But I'm telling you what, if you allow your children to have free reign on the internet, it is a dangerous place. It's like opening the door to hell and saying, you know what, see what you see. Because there's things that pop up in the corner of things, and you can click on it, and it will lead you down a rabbit trail of destruction. No matter how well-filtered you place it. I mean, that doesn't matter. It'll find its way in. You do a Google search for Doritos, and all of a sudden you're like, what in the world? <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, they, they tag all this horrible stuff, and they put words mixed into it, so you still see it even if you're not looking for it. And the whole thing is there's destruction out there without a doubt. We know that evil exists. So it's the same exact scenario. They're faithful to God, and God protects them, and God helps them, but at the same time, the evil exists, right? And we're going to see that that same evil exists for us today. The same destruction exists today. The same enemy that we fight, that, he, that they fight, we fight against today. If we're going to make a difference, then just like these midwives, we must remain accountable and faithful to God, no matter the pressure from the world. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 says this, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. When it says man, it means man or woman. It means humankind. That they be found faithful. So we are to be faithful no matter what happens. No matter how hard things may get, we remain faithful. No matter how much opposition we may face, we remain faithful. Because God rewards faithfulness. We see faithfulness in these midwives. We see an evil that is growing around them that is unbelievably powerful and destructive. And they have no defense. Their defense is all they have going for them is their willingness to be faithful to God. And you and I, we look at our society today and we go, well, look, what can I do? It's like spitting on a forest fire, man. It ain't going to make a bit of difference. What's my little life going to do? Your little life can impact another life. Your life can touch someone else. And it does not matter how many people fall. It doesn't matter how many people. Because guess what? Even if all those that you stand with eventually no longer stand with you and they go from being your allies to becoming your enemies, your job, my job, our job is to be faithful. Because you know what? God rewards that faithfulness and he will fight on our behalf. It's not our job to fix our society. It's our job to be faithful to God in the midst of our society while he works through us to change it one life at a time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for today, and I thank you for the message, Lord, from allies to enemies. Lord, there are times when we have all faced a situation where we've had someone who we thought were a friend 
who turned around and treated us like an enemy. And Lord, the only way for us to reach them, the only way for us to impact them, Lord, is for us to be faithful and to remember, remember to live in a way that is pleasing to you, which is to love, not to judge, uh, not to strike out in anger, Lord, but to share mercy and display grace. And God, that you will fight on our behalf. We thank you for the power of the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the lessons from 3,500 years ago that we can see that fit us perfectly today. Thank you for the wisdom of the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the spirit that led today. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you've done in my heart. If no one else received anything, Lord, I know that I did. And I pray that you'll help us, uh, Lord, to move forward for the cause of Christ. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, you know what? Honestly, Pastor, a lot of what you talked about, it made sense. I think I understood parts of it, but there's parts of me that, that made me feel a little bit lost. Guys, 17 and a half years ago, someone came to my house. I was not raised in a Christian home. I never went to church my entire life. I never looked at a Bible up to that point. At 34 years old, I completely nothing about God. Christmas was Santa Claus and Easter was Easter Bunny. That's all I knew. And someone, thankfully, because they cared, came and sat down in our household. And they talked to my wife and I. And they shared with us who God was. And they told us about a love that we'd never heard of before. We'd heard of religion but not about a relationship. And God had a desire to know us personally. And he sent them to our home to lovingly open the word of God and show us that, you know what? On our own, we were in deep trouble because all have sinned. Everybody's in the same boat. We've all failed. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But see, the problem was the fact that, yes, I had sinned, but I did not understand the ramifications of that. And he shared with me the bottom line is because of our sin, it separated us from God. There would be a come a day whenever I would take my last breath, my wife would take our last breath. And in that instant, if we did not have a relationship with Christ, we would be eternally separated from God forever. And he said, and there's a place called hell, and that's where you wind up. And he said, David, if tonight was your last night, are you sure? And I said, no, I don't know. Bottom line is, he said, you know, all we have to do is understand that we're sinners we're the problem. God's the solution. He loves us. For God committed the, but, but God loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. His love for us offers a gift to the world. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to know all about everything and all the things that we think we think we need to know. It's about a relationship. Knowing that God loves us and he wants us personally to have a relationship with him. And he reaches out from the cross when he said, it is finished. Everything that was required was done. And all it takes by us is a moment of choice that we by faith, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And all it takes is a matter of making a choice to receive that gift today. And I want you to imagine if Jesus was sitting beside you in your seat today, and he said, I love you exactly as you are. I have a purpose for your life. I want to use your life. I want to restore you. I want to give you a love and a relationship that you've never had before with me. And if he reached over and put his arm around your shoulder and he said, if I, could, if I would save you right now, which he would, if he was willing to save you exactly as you are, right where you're sitting, would you allow him to save you? Would you receive the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a gift of love that he offers from the cross. If you're here today and you want to receive that gift, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. 
Now, it's not the words of the prayer that will do anything for you. It's the intention of your heart. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. It's not a ceremony. It's not magic words. God's looking inside of you. And as he looks in your heart, if you truly want to receive him, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. And if you truly want him to save you, he will absolutely do so. He said, whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. It's a promise. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ, pray this prayer in your heart, in your mind, speaking to him, not to me, not to anyone else, speaking to God. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I've done plenty wrong. I'm so sorry. I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm asking you to pay the price for my sins. I'm asking you, Lord, to come into my heart, to forgive me of my sins, and to save my soul. Lord, I'm thankful for your love, and I'm so thankful that I'm now your child. I thank you for what you've done in my life, and I thank you for accepting me as your child. I will see you in heaven one day. By faith, I pray and thank you in Jesus' name.